Bless the hymn. Sing a new song. That, that's great, though. Thank you for doing that. We just need to keep singing them until they're not uh, difficult and new anymore. Sure. Michael read the text for preaching today, and I'll read again since it's just one verse, because um, we are doing something sort of topical here, so I'm, I'm pulling a passage because there's so many passages we could use. Um, this one simply says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Last week, we looked briefly at the idea of the atonement, especially at the nature of the atonement, also sometimes called the design of the atonement, but sort of two things in one. But what is the nature of Christ's suffering and death, and what was it designed to do? In case you don't aren't familiar with the word atonement, we've defined that sort of um, the life, death, sufferings of Jesus Christ and what it accomplished. That's, that's a quick way to define the atonement. But we especially last week wanted to think about what the nature of it is and what the design of it was. And we discovered that the atonement is objective in nature. That is, that the atoning work of Christ was aimed at God first and foremost. In other words, the justice of the triune God was satisfied in Christ's sufferings and death. And we're going to talk about that more in the weeks to come, especially we're going to look at some church history in the Synod of Dort and see um, some of the doctrine that we believe. Why did it come out of this Synod? And what we'll find out is one of the major uh, points that they made and what they started with was the justice of God. If we're going to talk about the atoning work of Christ, what did Jesus do? He satisfied the justice of God. Because in the garden, mankind sinned against God. We read about that in our catechism teaching. And God had declared that in the day that you sin, you shall surely die. And so in order for God to be just and to be truthful in what he said, his justice had to be satisfied. Sin had to be paid for with death. In other words, sin had to die, and God had to be the one to kill it. And so God alone is righteous and sinless and just, and so to God alone was an offering made for sin. So Jesus prayed, thy will be done. It was the will of God to put Jesus to death for sin. So the object of the atonement is God. We just read that passage also from Isaiah. It pleased God to crush him. And so God's justice was satisfied. His wrath, we said, was propitiated. Another biblical word, a great biblical word. That means satisfied or put off. God's wrath was propitiated. His justice satisfied because Jesus substituted for sinners. He was, as the Bible said, he was made sin. God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. So the atonement was designed, or the nature of it, in its design was to satisfy the justice of God so that he might save sinners instead of destroy them. And so we said that because the death of Christ propitiated God to sinners, did away with the enmity between us and God, God reconciled us to himself so that now he can save sinners for whom Christ died. And we refer to this view of the work of Christ's atonement as, and I said this last week, the substitutionary atonement. Christ substituted for us. He took our place. It's also called the vicarious atonement because Christ is the vicar. He went between us and God. He stood in our place. And another phrase, the penal substitutionary atonement. He paid the penalty due our sin. He took our place, became our substitute, died our death, paid for our sin. All these words and phrases define the same view of the work of Christ, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. This is so important, especially in our culture, because we have become so accustomed to thinking that everything is about us. We think salvation is about us. Modern evangelicalism has done its best to convince humanity that humanity is so awesome that God had to redeem them. So God sent Jesus because why wouldn't he? We're so good and awesome. Why wouldn't he save us? But we want to teach a proper understanding that first, salvation is about God. The salvation of men, of any men, women, boys, girls, glorifies God first and foremost because it only comes about because God is gracious and merciful and loving and has satisfied his own justice by sending his own son to save sinners. Because if there had been no substitute, then sinners would have had to all be destroyed for all eternity because of that enmity between us and God. Because we had nothing to offer. Somebody said, and I know we've repeated it many times, the only thing we brought to the table in the discussion of salvation was the sin that made salvation necessary. Our righteousness, the Bible says, the best we could offer is but filthy rags. Our confession, our 1689 confession, says it this way. By his obedience and death, Christ fully paid the debt of all those who are justified. He endured in their place the penalty they deserved. By this sacrifice of himself in his bloodshed on the cross, he legitimately, really, and fully satisfied God's justice on their behalf. Yet their justification is based entirely on free grace because he, Christ was given by the Father for them and his obedience and satisfaction were accepted in their place. So it's not just that Jesus died in your place, but God accepted that in your place. These things were done freely, not because of anything in the sinner, so that both the exact justice and the rich grace of God would be glorified in the justification of sinners. So you see that salvation, the work of Christ in redeeming sinners, is first and foremost toward God so that he is glorified, the Father and the Son. And I point this out because before we can 
to have a discussion about the salvation of sinners, we should first highlight, I think, the satisfaction of God in Christ. Salvation is about God before it's about men. Your salvation, as sweet as it is to you, and as sacred and as precious as it is to you, and it is to me, it is, first of all, a sweet-smelling savor offered to God. The Bible tells us that. Simply, salvation is of the Lord. So the nature and the design of the atonement is Godward. We are the beneficiaries of God's grace and favor and mercy and justice. If God were not all these things, merciful, kind, gracious, loving, and just, then we would not be saved. Because Isaiah said, upon Christ was the chastisement that brought us peace. Because upon Christ, God laid the iniquity of us all. The atonement glorifies God in Christ. So with the nature and the design of the atonement clear, I think now we can turn to the extent of the atonement. In other words, this is a tough question for us to consider. Who did Christ die for then? Who does the atonement affect? We know why Christ died. So now we ask then for whom did Christ die? We know what happened in the atonement. Something really did happen. I love the way our confession points that out so clearly. That he legitimately, really, and fully satisfied God's justice. Something really did happen. God's wrath was propitiated and satisfied. The law of God was kept and a sinless life lived. We refer to that and have in church history as Christ's active obedience. He lived out. Not only did he not obey, I mean, not, not break the law of God, but he did something that no man's ever done. He loved God with all his heart, soul, and mind and strength. There's never been a human that's done that outside of Christ. So even if you think, well, I've never broken the law of God, which is not true, you need to know this. You've never loved God with your heart, soul, and strength. Not every bit of it. Not 100% of who you are. You can't. It's impossible. But Christ did that in his act of obedience. And this sinless God-man then was made sin for us and died as a substitute for sinners. We refer to that as his passive obedience, his death in our place. But the question now is, but what sinners did he stand in the place of? For which sinners did he substitute for? And I'm just going to pose some questions mostly this morning. And I'll answer these as we go forward. But I think sometimes it's good for you, along with me, to think through these things. So you don't just show up and I can give you all the answers, so to speak. Not that all my answers would always be correct. But I do try to give you answers from the scripture. But I'm going to give you some questions you can think about in the next few days so that when you come back, maybe you will have formulated some thought to these questions. Is it possible that Christ substituted for every sinner who ever lived? That's a good question. Is it possible that Christ substituted for those who are in hell? That's an even better question. That's hard to think about. 
was the design of the atonement to save men or was the design of the atonement to make them savable? It's another big argument in church history. Was the design of the atonement to make salvation, in other words, a reality or to make it a possibility? Did the work that Christ did on our behalf, his active and passive obedience, did that do something or did it just open up some doors and avenues for possibilities? And I'm sure that in those questions you can sense the, the tension. I mean, this is a good way to start a fight. If you go into a lot of places and ask these questions, I found that out. Not too long ago, I was, I know I probably shared this in, uh, sometimes preachers, we don't, we, we use the same analogies and stories over and over. But I was literally yelled at by a man for simply asking these questions. I never even answered them. I just answered, I asked that question. Well, what, before we talk about, because he was criticizing me right up front about what I believed about the atonement and who Christ died for. I said, well, first, what did, what did Christ actually do? What did his death do? What did dying on the cross do? And, of course, he had an answer. And I said, okay, well, then, um, did he do that for the people in hell? You're just changing that. You're just making up stuff. and You're just twisting stuff. I wasn't, I was, I was, I'm just asking the question. Is it possible for Jesus to die for somebody and then them be in hell? Just asking the question. We never got past that question. If you recall our acrostic for the doctrines of grace, most of you should have at least been exposed to that through our new members class. If you're, if you're a part of our church. You would know that we we are talking about the L in the acrostic, which stands for limited atonement. Which, of course, we've taught here that that's not the best description for this biblical doctrine that we espouse. But this is the area of the doctrines of grace that is most hotly contested and debated. A lot of people will claim that they accept four out of the five points of these doctrines of grace, and usually when somebody says that, they mean, but I don't accept the L. I can't grab a hold of that one. And I know this well because I was there at one time myself. We all struggle with it. It's tough because of these questions I just asked. It's not as easy. Most often, if something's been debated in church history for 2,000 years, it's probably because they're difficult things to think about. You know, difficult things to think about. A lot of people don't like this L. I heard R.C. Sproul say that somebody came up to him once and said, uh, I'm, a, I'm a Christmas Calvinist. He said, what do you mean Christmas Calvinist? He said, you know, Noel. <laughs> he said, I just can't take, I can't take that one. I can't take that one. And we all struggle with it for a lot of reasons. Mostly because since childhood, we've been told that John 3.16 tells us that Christ died for every person who ever lived and it's up to humans to accept or reject that truth, making the gospel hinge on whether men accept or reject it and not hinge on what Christ has done. And we've made the focus of the gospel the decisions of men rather than the decrees of God. And I think that's a huge thing to think about. 
Just think about Ephesians 1, which clearly says that the purposes and decrees of God was that he would send his son, and he did, for those who he predestined. And he did so according to the glory of his grace. And so I'm afraid that if we examined it and thought about it, we have declared in the modern church that the nature of the atonement is manward instead of Godward. And the design, first and foremost, is to save men and not to satisfy God. And that's why I wanted to spend that much time talking about the design of the atonement before I try to answer the questions of the extent of it. Because I think it's more important to know why Christ died than for whom he died. And if we, if we can grasp a little bit of why he died, I think for who he died, for whom, it'd be easier to hold on to, and at least make a little more sense. Easier for us to at least consider how the atonement should be applied. First consider what it accomplished. But I found out what is true for most people, and was true for me also, the only thing that people want to consider is the second question. I'd rather talk about who Christ died for, not why he died, or what it did for God. But as a reminder, to, before we go down this road of limited atonement, that's what the L stands for in our acrostic. I want to define that and you'll see why it's not such a good idea to call it limited. But there's basically the belief that in the active and passive obedience of Christ, in the life of obedience and the obedient death of Christ, his substitutionary atonement was offered to God the Father on behalf of those who would be saved. In other words, his atonement landed exactly upon who it should have landed on. It was specifically for a people. For those, and here's another word that nobody likes, but it is in the Bible. It was for those who were predestined for salvation. So we prefer to use the term definite atonement or particular atonement, signifying that the work of Christ that he offered to the Father was for a people in particular or for a definite group of people. Like we talked about in the very first message that I did, when the priest, the high priest would go in once a year to offer the sacrifice, he didn't just go in and offer it for random people anywhere in the world that might want to be interested in it. It was for specifically the people of Israel for who the priest went in there for. And those people hung on edge out there hoping that the priest would go in and do everything correct and come back out that their sins would be covered and atoned for. In reality, we don't believe that the atonement was in any way limited in its efficacy or in its power. We only believe it is limited toward those whom it was intended for. In other words, limited only toward those for who it was intended. It does specifically what it was supposed to do. Because remember, something actually happened when Christ atoned for sin. It actually paid in full a debt that was owed. There is nothing left to accomplish. Christ said, it is finished. Sin and iniquity was paid for. The debt erased. The hymn we just sang, I'll say these words again. Can he, the righteous judge of men, condemn me for a debt of sin which, Lord, was already charged to thee? If God said, 
that sin and that debt is paid in Christ, in my son, gone, then how is he going to punish me for it down the road? So I ask, if your sin debt is erased, then how can you be condemned for it? How can anybody be condemned for something that had been erased? And the question again, is it possible for people to be in hell if Christ has erased their debt? For what debt are they in hell for? What would they be charged with? And you might say, well, they'd be charged with unbelief, of course. Then again, the question would have to be, did Christ not die for the debt of unbelief also? That has to be part of the debt. If he paid for everything. Let me assure you, if you are here and you have not been given saving belief in Christ, if you're in unbelief, Christ has died for that sin too. He will give you faith to believe. You'll be finding less and less reasons to refuse him because you'll find out that he's been removing those scales from your eyes and unstopping your ears. And every rebellious reason you have had to refuse him is eroding and fading away and your heart is becoming more and more soft and yielding to his call. So, Repent and believe. That's the call of God to sinners. Christ died for sinners. You are a sinner. So hear that and believe. I want to answer all those questions in detail in the next few weeks, but for now, let me say this. Just lay aside all the things you don't understand and all the whys that bother you and focus on that which is certain. Christ Jesus died for sinners and we are those. All right? So when somebody says, well, if you believe that, then why you wouldn't even, why would you go preach the gospel to everybody? Because Christ died for sinners and everybody I ever preached to would be a sinner. And I don't have to worry about who's going to be saved and who's not. I worry about who the atonement of Christ was offered to is offered to God. And my point in preaching the gospel is to glorify God, first and foremost, to see sinners saved secondly. And that takes all pressure off of me because the power of the gospel is that which saves. So though there be thousands and thousands and even millions in hell and more to come, None of that should concern you as much as the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ has lived and died to satisfy the righteous requirements of God on the behalf of a multitude of sinners so vast that no man can number. It's what John said. Sometimes we just focus on the wrong things. Well, what about the people in hell? Well, what about the people in heaven? I mean, why are we so focused on who can't be saved and not focused enough on who can be saved? You know who can be saved? Whosoever believes in Christ and repents. And you know who that'll be? The ones for whom Christ died. Every time. Be counted among the throngs of souls who surrender to the true and living God. Be counted among the hosts that are gathered around the throne of God this very instant, singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. 
The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own by name and leads them out. I hope that you've heard your shepherd calling your name and that you'll be saved even today. We'll try to answer these questions you might not like to answer. But I think this is what's important. Salvation is first Godward. Secondly, man. We're all we're also used to thinking about us first. I mean, the majority of people out here talk about heaven and salvation. It's all about what we're going to get, what we're going to see, and who we're going to be reunited with. Rarely do people talk about heaven in these terms. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Yet that's how that's how the Bible often describes the people of God that are with him now. Salvation is first God, we're then men. But it is important. And God does save sinners, which we are all part of. Praise God for that, right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, I know these are these are tough things to think through. And I mean, so many of our people have been faithful to look into this and to think through it. And so many of our folks um, accept these doctrines as true. And our aim and goal is not to convince people of our doctrinal views. We just want people to see God for who he is. And how he's revealed himself. This is how you've revealed yourself. And it's been so many years that we've grown accustomed to thinking earthly and fleshly. We've gotten too far away from these high thoughts of God. Because when you think in these terms and you get to where we, we hope to get to in these doctrines, it takes away all works and all efforts of man. We come to a place where we don't think anymore that salvation is a little bit of God or a lot of God and a little bit of men or a little bit of our ability and efforts and a lot of God's efforts. We, we recognize along with Jonah and every other prophet in the scripture and preacher of the word of God that's been a true preacher of the word of God. Salvation is of the Lord. We confess nothing other than that. He gives us no right to brag and think we're better than anybody and we're so special for some reason. None of that is true. It brings us to our knees because we recognize if God didn't save us, we wouldn't be saved. And if I had to wait on my uh, leaf to turn over or if I had to wait on my life to, to have a better outcome than it's had or me to start making better decisions, any of those things, I would be lost and I would spend eternity paying for my sin. But my faith and hope is not in any of my ability, not in my preaching, not in my church attendance, none of those things. My hope is solely and completely in Christ and the work that he has accomplished toward God the Father on behalf of sinners. And I'm thankful for that. And I pray that your people will hear your word and love you more in Jesus' name. Amen.